0: It is certainly an exciting Sunday evening to be together as we think about our men who will be appointed this evening as deacons and the chance we have as a church family to be a part of that process and to affirm them and to encourage that, their families and uh, those who will be going on that journey with them as they accept this role. We're so thankful for the deacons that have served and that will continue to serve. It is just unbelievable to think about how much work goes on behind the scenes. In fact, if you were here at this building today after our second service, you would have seen our encouragement teams get reorganized as we came together for a wonderful meal, and you would have seen the leaders of the that ministry stay around to organize those teams even after everyone else had left. We had a wonderful shower that took place here at the building. We had our group come in that had gone skiing. We had our young soldiers and young ladies serving Christ. Many of our teachers gathered for a children's teachers meeting. And that's just one afternoon. That gives you an idea of all the things that are available for you to be involved in. And ministries that need your help. And so we want to find our place and we want to plug in. It's important for us to reflect on that as we think about the the new deacons that are, are being appointed And you may not know this, but our elders have made it a priority to meet with each one of our deacons and then as we have our new deacons appointed, meet with them as well and to ask what what they need, what they can pray for, what their dream is for that ministry. And David and JP have played such a wonderful role in those meetings as well, finding ways that we as a ministry staff can encourage the deacons and serve as that liaison there, in a, in a way that can support them and can help them. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the work that JP is doing and, and David as he has helped him through uh, that work. And of course, uh, that is the reason during the month of January that I've been spending Sunday nights uh, uh, speaking to you, as David has been at work with JP in those meetings. And I don't know if you realize uh, what a blessing it is to have Phil and David and, and JP with us. Uh, they are A group of guys I enjoy working with every day, they are continually working hard and using uh, their amazing talents to serve God. And that's just one of the ways uh, that we see that happening. It's truly a blessing to be part of this congregation. As we think about all the blessings we've received, I think there's something special about Sunday nights. Don't you? I think there's something special about coming together on Sunday evening. Maybe it's a little more informal. We're here at one service all together. There's just something that's irreplaceable about that. I've been corresponding over the past couple of weeks with some friends that have positions working with the church in various areas of the country. Some are are largely urban areas where it's difficult uh, after dark to go downtown to the buildings where these congregations are located. Some are in mission areas. And so we were discussing the importance of Sunday evenings, and I just reflected on On what a blessing it is. One of those friends shared a story with me. He said that uh, a fictional story was set up in which a minister was very frustrated with the way Sunday evening service had been going. He sat down with a friend over coffee, and his friend said, well, how are things? And he said, I tell you, I'm really discouraged. We have a hard time getting people to come out on Sunday evenings. He said, really? He said, yes, in fact, I've been so discouraged that I went ahead and I made a decision. Without contacting anyone else, I just went ahead and and I announced we were going to stop having Sunday evening services. I've canceled the past five weeks of Sunday evening service. And so the friend was shocked by this. And he said, well, how has the congregation reacted? And he said, well, I'd imagine they'll be pretty upset when they find out. And I thought it was interesting as, as uh, he reflects sometimes the difficulty we have in coming together on Sunday evenings. I'm so glad that's not the case here. I don't know about you, but seeing a crowd like this gather together to worship God on Sunday evenings is very encouraging to me. And one of the things we've been able to do on these Sunday evenings uh, that will be so important throughout the year is reflect on our daily Bible readings, our Bible readings we've been doing throughout the year. And you may recall some of these illustrations that have helped us do that. Uh, One is, uh, as we think about the book of Genesis, you remember this picture. When you think of Genesis, think of a picture with a big N. And if you say begin quickly enough, it sounds like begin, and the theme of Genesis is beginnings. So much begins in the book of Genesis, and we've learned that as we've studied through that book together. You might also recognize these two palm trees. When we think of that, we think of the book of Psalms. And remember, the theme of Psalms is what these two palm trees are doing. Prayer and praise. That's the theme of the book of Psalms. We see people at their highest highs in serving God and at their lowest lows. As we continue, we're reminded of the book of Proverbs, and we think about a, a statement like this, a fool and his money are, and we can fill in soon parted. Uh, Proverbs is a book of principles, uh, of life truths that will, that will guide us as we serve God. We've also been going through the Gospels in part of our daily readings, and you remember here we've got a big mat with a U on it, and if you say that uh, quickly enough together and use a little bit of your imagination, it sounds like Matthew. And so when we think of Matthew, remember the theme is king of kings. And so as we've gone through these, I don't know about you, but I, that's why I'm so glad, even as I, I've corresponded with these other gentlemen and talked about how difficult it was uh, for them to have, have uh, large groups come together on Sunday nights. I'm glad and thankful for the spirit we have here. I hope we can keep this up all year. And I think we can. You'll remember as we go through our readings, we've just started moving from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. And so here's a picture to help us remember the book of Exodus. You can see Egypt in the background and you can see a large group of people moving and it can't get any plainer than this. They're walking through a large exit sign. So when we think of the book of Exodus, the theme of that book is exiting and getting the the Lord's people out of Egypt and, and Moses is leading them through, leading them to the promised land. And not only does he, he help lead them out of Egypt, but he also has to lead them out of those old lives. You remember, they start complaining about the food they used to have in Egypt, the life they used to have in Egypt. And so when you think of the book of Exodus, think of an exit. And that's where we will be beginning uh, as, as we continue on through our daily Bible readings. And again, we have extra copies of those in the office, uh, but we are, we are printing the readings every week in the bulletin. So if you just want to take your own Bible and follow along, it's a great way For us to focus, we're going to be looking at one last story from Genesis this evening in Genesis 32. If you have your Bibles with you, if you would go ahead and turn there. It's interesting when you see a person who is walking with a limp, there's usually a story behind that. It may be that the person was an athlete and that 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 limp is a result of an injury out on the field. And so that limp is a constant reminder of the glory days, of what it was like to play, what it was like to be on the court or be on the field. It could be that a limp might remind someone of an injury sustained in a war. It could be a veteran that remembers a sacrifice that was made. And that limp is that lasting reminder. Usually there's a story behind a person walking with a limp. And we're going to look at Jacob's story because he has one of those stories Behind his walk. And as we think about this, we need to fully appreciate what we're going to begin reading in Genesis 32 by thinking about Jacob's life up until this point. Abraham had a son, Isaac, and then Isaac, that son of promise, marries Rebekah, and Rebekah gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. It's funny that we say Jacob's name first, even though Esau was the firstborn. But you'll remember that, that prophecy that was given that two nations were in her womb, and that the older would serve the younger. And so it's in the midst of that prophecy that Jacob and Esau are born. And Esau is born first, but Jacob is grasping onto his heel as they they are given birth. And so we see from the very beginning, there's a little animosity between the two brothers. And you may remember that even though this prophecy has already been made, that the older will serve the younger, Isaac thinks of Esau as his favorite. Isaac has a a taste for wild game and Esau loves to hunt. Esau's an outdoorsman. And meanwhile, Jacob is not the outdoorsman that Esau is. He prefers to be more of a homebody, staying around home. And so Rebecca takes him as her favorite. And so there's a sense of favoritism that's going on here. Esau comes in one day and he's famished. And you'll remember that Jacob, rather than offering Esau some food in a spirit of brotherly kindness, says, you can have what I'm preparing If you're willing to part with your birthright, and you may remember that a birthright was very important, especially to a firstborn, because the firstborn would receive more of the inheritance than would his other brothers and sisters. Now, it was Esau's mistake to go ahead and sell this birthright just for something to eat. But at the same time, can you imagine what it would take for your own brother to turn against you and to say, I wonder what I can get out of this deal? I have him right where I want him. And so Jacob obtained the birthright. Not only that, but later on, as it comes time before Isaac's death for Isaac to give a blessing, what would have been considered sort of like an oral will and testament, he was going to give his blessing, he was still going to give the blessing to Esau. Remember, they knew the prophecy that the older would serve the younger. He was going to give the blessing to Esau. Rebekah hears of this and helps Jacob put together a costume that he can go in and he can smell like Esau. He can even have the... The animal skin on him that makes him feel hairy like Esau, and he tricks his own father into giving him Esau's blessing. And because of that, because of how angry Esau becomes and his mother's urging, he goes and finds, he, he leaves his family. He goes out to Rebecca's family. Her brother Laban is there, and you remember he falls in love with Rachel. And he works for seven years to obtain Rachel's hand in marriage. And yet, you have that that little twist here in the story where we see that Jacob's not the only deceiver in the family tree, where Laban decides to give him his older daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. And so because of that, the next week, Jacob's able to marry Rachel, works another seven years, and then as he continues to live in that area, uh, Jacob's family grows, he becomes more prosperous, and ultimately he decides he wants to leave Laban's household. He wants to leave that area. And so he comes up with a very clever plan. He tells Laban, why don't we do this? Why don't you give me your wages, all the spotted and the, the speckled sheep? And you can have all the pure white ones. I'll have the ones with, with spots and blemishes. Those will be my wages. Now, that sounded very good because it's obvious to see which sheep belong to whom. If you do it that way, the ones that don't have any spots belong to Laban. And so Laban said that would be a great idea. And what the text reveals to us next is that Laban took all the spotted and speckled sheep, gave them to his sons, which were about three days journey away, so that Jacob wouldn't have anything. And so again, you have a, a little bit of deceit taking place here. And then Jacob does something that's very interesting. Apparently in the ancient Near East, they believed in, uh, in these sorts of selective breeding practices. But he takes some poplar and, and almond branches and, and he, he cuts it down to where it's, you have the uh, the outer portion removed and you just had had the, the white... Uh, be to the branch there, and then he would set it down in the trough where they were feeding. And apparently he believed that that would cause the sheep to become spotted and speckled. Now, Genesis 31 and verse 7 tells us that God was at work in all of that. But at the time, Jacob thought he was being very deceitful. In fact, he used this kind of selective breeding process to focus only on the strong sheep, only on the flocks that were, that were good, not the ones that were weak or the ones that had any runs. And so his flocks eventually became so great that they were greater... Than Labans, And it's with all of that in the background, as Jacob has taken his family, he's uprooted them. They're leaving where they had lived for so long, and he's coming back, and he's about to face Esau. And you still get that sense that, that Jacob's nervous about this. He must have been fearful. And in a way that is intended maybe to manipulate Esau a little bit, he, he, he orchestrates this procession of gifts that are going to reach Esau before he does to kind of soften him up a little bit if he's still angry. And so it's when everybody else is left that we pick up in verse 4 of Genesis 32. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. This is a fascinating story, isn't it? In the life of Jacob. I believe we see here really a crossroads in Jacob's life. If you want to create a mental picture, you might think of this land of Penuel located near the Jabbok River. And here's a present-day picture to sort of wrap our minds around as we try to locate where this would have taken place geographically. But as you think about Jacob's life, this is really a crossroads for him. Jacob not only wrestles with this man who we later find out is, is a manifestation of God. At this point in his life, don't you think he's wrestling with some other issues? He's about to see Esau. Here's a man he cheated out of his his birthright and his blessing. Now Esau could have stopped the first one, but he certainly didn't have a word to say about the second one. Jacob was very deceitful to his own brother, and now he's going to face him. Don't you think he was wrestling with that a little bit? And even up until this point in Jacob's life, we see a little back and forth between Jacob, because this is not the first time God has appeared to him. Jacob has had a dream. Jacob has has been revealed a message from God, and yet we see sometimes he seems faithful to God, and then sometimes he's promoting his own agenda. So he's wrestling back and forth with who he wants to be, with, with whom he wants to serve. As we think about the wrestling match that takes place here, I think Jacob reveals a few principles that will be helpful in our own lives. The first thing that we see is that no one wins a wrestling match with God. Did you notice that? Now, Jacob did receive something out of this. Uh, we see that in a way he persevered through this wrestling match, but he certainly didn't win. He certainly didn't overpower God. In fact, it, it seems that we get the sense as soon as, as God saw that, that Jacob was going to keep going through this, that he touched that socket of his hip, we get a sense that God could have really ended the struggle anytime he wanted to. But it's an important lesson for Jacob to learn here. Because Jacob, whose name means uh, heel grabber or even deceiver, he usually got his way, didn't he? And when it came to his birthright, Jacob wasn't going to inherit the birthright, but he found a way to get what he wanted. When it came to the blessing, that wasn't intended for Jacob, but he found a way to get what he wanted. Even when it came time to separate the flocks, Jacob knew what it took to get what he wanted. Jacob seems to be very good at getting what he wanted, and yet he's realizing that no one wins in a wrestling match with God. There's no one that can overpower him. God's purposes aren't going to be thwarted by human effort. In fact, the Bible is filled with stories of people who wrestle with God. Do you remember Jonah, the prophet that God called? Jonah decided he wasn't going to do what God commanded. Well, a violent storm and a few days in the belly of a great fish changed Jonah's mind. Jonah realized that you can't overpower God. Fast forwarding to the New Testament. King Herod seemed to be very concerned with what people thought in the book of Acts. In fact, he found out that people liked it when he put James, the brother of John, to death. And because they liked it so much, he put Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. Well, God delivers Peter out of prison. And that's not even enough as Herod stands before, at the end of that chapter, he stands before a great group of people. And they say, this is the voice of a God and not of man. And Herod soaks that in. He takes that for himself and he doesn't give God any credit. And because of that, he loses his life. You see, no one can win in a wrestling match with God. There's no one that can overpower God. I like the way that Paul puts it when he stands before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. As he gives us that account of his conversion, he puts in a detail that we don't see when we read about it first on the road to Damascus. He puts in a statement made when Jesus reveals himself and he says, it is difficult to kick against the goads. And that mental picture of, of goading someone, if you even want to think of like a, a cattle prod that's, being, that's poking someone, it's difficult to fight against that. It's difficult to kick against that. We can't win a wrestling match with God. And yet sometimes, because we're human beings, we're tempted to try that, aren't we? Now, we might not have a literal wrestling match the way that Jacob experienced it, but when we encounter God through his word, his communication through us, aren't there passages of scripture that we sort of resist a little bit. Maybe we tell God, I-, I think this part is okay. This commandment sounds good to me. I can do this, but, you know, when you-, you really want me to take time to pray to you, God, do you have any idea what my schedule's like? Do you know what's going on right now in my life? I, I don't know if I can do that. And we wrestle a little bit with God's commands. I know you want me to come together and to worship with the congregation. I know that's important, but do you know how how much homework I've had recently? Do you know how much extra stress I've had on the job? Do you realize what's going to be on TV tonight? I mean, I've got so much coming at me, and we wrestle with that a little bit, don't we? And yet Jacob shows us that we can't wrestle with God, that no one wins in a wrestling match with God. It's only when we submit to his will that we can win, that we can emerge victorious. It's interesting because Jacob had served himself. He had been getting a birthright, a blessing, sheep and flocks and goats for himself. Now he's realizing it's time to serve God. And wrestling with someone all night and never prevailing for a person who wasn't used to losing, who was used to getting his way, must have really drove that lesson home. No one wins in a wrestling match with God. It's also important for us to realize that no one lives a life that is beyond redemption. We've been pretty critical of what Jacob has done up until this point, and for good reason. Jacob's made a lot of mistakes up until this point in his life. But isn't it interesting that God is still going to use Jacob? For some of us here this evening, this will probably be the most important thing we study out of this text. No one lives a life that's beyond redemption. I don't know what's happened in your past. I don't know what your family situation has been, what your work situation has been. There are so many things we don't know about each other and yet every one of us knows for certain that no one lives a life that's beyond redemption. If Peter can stand before a crowd of those who crucified Jesus, who mocked him and who gave approval to his death and he can preach the gospel and say that they can be baptized, repent, they can be forgiven of their sins. If they can be forgiven, so can we. And it's easy for us to respond saying, you just don't understand what kind of life I've lived. You, you don't understand what I've done. I haven't done one of those sins we usually think of as sort of a minor sin. It, it wasn't just a few white lies I told. You know, it, it wasn't just one or two times that I did something I wasn't supposed to do. This was an addiction I struggled with. This was something serious. This was something illegal that I did. This was a way in which I was unfaithful. And yet we realize that no one lives a life Beyond redemption, when we're willing to turn from that life and submit our will to the Lord's, we can be redeemed. I appreciate Phil leading that song, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. It's good news. It's good news that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. And I know that by one of the readings that we started out with at the very beginning of January. This is one of those chronologies that uh, sometimes can be so difficult for us to dig through. Let's be honest, this is one of the tougher parts of reading the Bible through in a year, is to go through all of these chronologies and all of these names. But there are some little, little nuggets of wisdom tucked away in those, some, some wonderful lessons. And a few of those are seen here in Jesus' chronology, and the first couple of verses of Matthew chapter 1. In verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, who we're looking at this evening. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah. And did you notice who those children were conceived with? With Tamar. Tamar, as we read through in the book of Genesis, we see was someone who played the part of a harlot, played the role of a harlot. And then we go through and we see Perez and, and Hezron and Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab and Nashon and salmon, and, 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 and then he begot Boaz by Rahab. Do you remember Rahab. She was another harlot that decided to turn her life around and be faithful to God. God preserved her life. And not only that, but she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And we go all the way through to Obed. We see see Ruth there. We see Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. And David's son was Solomon. Do you remember who Solomon's mother was? The woman who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. David committed a sin. And yet, as a result of the union that that came after all that sin had taken place, God was able to use these imperfect people. That doesn't glorify anything that they did. That's not saying anything that they did was right. It's showing us that God is willing to use our imperfections and imperfect situations to accomplish his purposes. Jacob had a checkered past, but he had a bright future. And the message today, if you're thinking of your past and you're thinking there's no way that I can be redeemed, you don't want me to be a member of this church because you don't know what I've done. I would encourage you to look at all of the examples in the Bible of imperfect people God uses. I would challenge you to look through the book of Genesis and find a functional family. All these families have problems that we read through in the book of Genesis. And we have problems. And so we understand that God uses imperfect people. Now, that doesn't mean we glorify in our sin. Paul dealt with that question in Romans chapter 6 in the first couple of verses. Remember, he said, "Should should we increase our sin so that grace may abound? And the answer to that is absolutely not. We don't want to sin just to see how much grace we can incur from God. But we need to realize that even though we're imperfect, we can be used by him. One of my friends that I've taken some classes with and corresponded with over the years is named Clyde Slimp. He preaches in Mustang, Oklahoma. And he's preached in Arkansas and Tennessee. A few months ago, I heard him publicly tell a story that I had never heard before. The story about his life. You see, he was adopted. And his birth was a result of a man who had been unfaithful to his wife. He was put up for adoption. He was adopted by a Christian family. They brought him up in the Lord's church. He is now preaching the gospel, preaching God's word, leading souls to him. Isn't it amazing how God can use these imperfect circumstances without justifying the actions, but he can use those results to accomplish his purpose? No one here tonight is living a life that's beyond redemption. Not only that, but no one encounters God and walks away the same. Have you noticed that? No one encounters God and walks away the same. Jacob experienced that in a very literal sense. He literally didn't walk away the same. He also receives a new name here and a new identity. Anytime I see God change someone's name, I need to pay attention because that usually means he's changing their identity. We've seen him change Abram's name to Abraham the father of many. Jesus gave Simon the name Cephas, or Peter, which meant rock, indicating that rock-solid faith that Peter, who up until that point had been very inconsistent, was going to have. He changes Jacob's name, heel-grabber or deceiver, to Israel, one who strives with God. And that's going to be true of not only Jacob's life, but of the Israelites. Throughout the history of Israel, they're going to strive with God. And we see also that walking with the limp served as a lasting reminder of a powerful God. It's difficult to think that you're in charge and you're in control when you're walking with a limp and you know who caused it. Remember, at the end of this passage, Jacob understood that he had met God face to face. Often, if you look at pictures of the scene, you'll see Jacob wrestling with an angel with wings. And yet Jacob said he saw God face to face. God asked him what his name was. Now that's the question Jacob had answered before. You remember when his father Isaac asked him his name, what did he say? He said, it's Esau. But here he's wrestling with God. God asks him what his name is. And he says, it's no longer going to be Jacob. It's no longer going to be a deceiver. All of the things that had happened in the past, that's going to change. Because you're going to be Israel. You're going to be one who strives with God. And we really see a change in Jacob's life after this point. In fact, his encounter with Esau doesn't go at all like he thinks it will. When he meets Esau... He saw answers with kindness that Jacob wasn't expecting. Jacob's life is going to change. And you can just imagine that that last verse that talks about him, him limping away. You can imagine with every step he took, he remembered who was in control. See, there's usually a story about someone who walks with a limp. Jacob had a story. In fact, it's a story that we see in verse 32 was told all throughout the years as we read, for this to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh. Because he, taught, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. As they were preparing meals for years and years to come, they were reminded of Jacob. They were reminded that he walked with a limp. This evening I need to ask myself, am I walking with a limp? Am I walking with an understanding that I'm not the one in control? that if I were to take God on in a wrestling match and wrestle with his commands, that ultimately God's purposes will always prevail, even if it doesn't look like it this side of eternity, we know that they will? Do I understand the fact that my life is not beyond redemption? That there's nothing that I've done, there is nothing I've done, if I'm not willing to turn from that life, repent of that sin, and seek forgiveness, there's nothing I've done of which I can't be forgiven if I just come to God, and if I just do it on his terms. Do I understand that when I encounter God in his word, that I'm not going to be the same when I leave? That's what's so great about this daily Bible reading that we've been doing. Because every time we come into contact with God's word, we're going to leave changed. We're going to leave transformed. A gentleman who you may or may not have heard of played football in the 1920s and 30s. Roy Regals was an all-American athlete. In fact, he was captain of the 1930 USC football team. He was a member of the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. And he went on to own and run a successful chemical company. He even spent time in coaching. It was a great success story. His life was a great success story. But there was one incident that I'm sure he would have liked to forget, but no one else would forget, that took place just a year earlier in 1929, on New Year's Day, when they were playing in in the Rose Bowl. And as, as they were playing, he was playing defense, and he intercepted the ball. Now, on the play where he intercepted the ball, he had pivoted a little bit. And so he took off running. He received the ball, took off running directly in the wrong direction. He went straight for his own end zone. In fact, one of his teammates, who was known for his speed, had to run, catch up with him, and tackle him, tackle his own player at the three-yard line before he landed in his own end zone. Well, they tried to punt out of there. They couldn't. The punt was blocked. A safety was scored, which ultimately was the two points that would cost them the game. They lost eight to seven. It was halftime of that game. You can imagine what the crowd was like as he goes into the locker room. They say that Roy just wrapped himself up in a towel, and he just couldn't look at anyone. He couldn't talk to anyone. And as Coach Price is often known for having some fairly long uh, halftime speeches during his tenure as coach, he didn't have much to say. You can imagine he was trying to think of how to respond. This is what Roy said as they were about to go back on the field and the coach said the same team that started the first half is going to start the second half. And he said, coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. And I like his coach's response. He said, Roy, get up and go back out there. The game is only half over. Jacob comes to a point in his life where he's wrestling with God. The message is, things are only half over. You have plenty of life to live, and you're going to live it with a new identity, with a new understanding of who you serve. If you're here this evening and you're discouraged by what's taking place in your life, if you, you might feel like there's a sin in your life that there's no way you could face your friends or your family. ...and tell them about. There's no way that you could, you could come down forward... ...and that you could let this be known for the entire congregation... ...that there's no way that could happen. Uh, the message of the gospel is very similar... ...although it's far better than this halftime speech. The message of the gospel... ...is that we all still have a chance to turn back to God. This life is not over. And because it's not over... ...we have the opportunity... ...to accept the sacrifice Christ has given us... ...by following His commands... By turning our lives around, confessing his name, putting him on in baptism, and beginning that walk. You know, they say, uh, sports writers and spectators of that game, say that they've never seen a football player play the second half the way Roy Regals played in the second half of that game. If you think that your life up until this point has been a struggle, maybe even recently, you've been struggling, there's no reason that it can't be turned around. Not through the power of ourselves, but through the power of God. If we walk with a limp, if we realize that we're not in control, God's in control. And as we look at his word, none of us are ever going to walk away the same. You can make that decision tonight. If there's any way we can help you, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.